You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. When you think about retirement, do you have a strategy to help your money last as long as you do? That is the biggest fear by far for women. To help make sure you're ready for the future, schedule your complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlock your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95 plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter best-selling author and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. The bigger risk is we toxify failure so much that people are then unwilling to speak up with the small signals that something might be off in time to catch and correct and then avoid the big failures because I'm a big fan of avoiding big failures. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Move fast and break things. That was Mark Zuckerberg's now famous early motto for Facebook. Fast forward to today, many startup founders have come to live by this idea that if you're not getting messy, if you're not failing often, you are not making progress and you're definitely not creating the next Facebook. Recently, though, there has been some backlash to this startup culture mentality, especially in the wake of the 2018 Cambridge Analytica scandal, where millions of Facebook users' data was used without their consent to create targeted political advertising. Zuckerberg later apologized. He called what happened a mistake on Facebook's part. And that remark from that guy, the move fast and break things guy, it struck a sour note with a lot of people. Why? Because this was a huge failure. This was not a simple mistake. So where's the balance? What's the right way to fail? Because we all fail sometimes. Well, what's the right way to fail without imploding? How can we encourage creativity and innovation and at the same time not move so fast that we harm others and look or even are acting in a completely careless manner? 
Amy C. Edmondson is joining us today to explain the difference between bad failure and something she says we should all be seeking out in our day-to-day lives, good failure. She is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School, was recently named as the number one management thinker in the world by Thinkers 50, and she's got a new book out called The Right Kind of Wrong, The Silence of Failing. Well, Amy, welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much for having me. You start this book with a quote from Churchill, and he said, success is stumbling from failure to failure with no loss of enthusiasm. From the outside looking in, when I think about the women that I look up to in big corporate jobs or with large influential platforms, it doesn't seem like they're stumbling all that much at all. What would you say to that? Well, I would say we're not seeing everything, thankfully. right? There's no need for us to see everything in everyone's life. I would argue that overall, those who are achieving great success have very likely failed more often than the average person. They just, they fail smart. They fail in good ways, meaning they're willing to take risks in new territory, knowing that not all of them will work out, right? Not all of them will produce the hoped for success in that moment, but all of them will give you new information, new learnings, new ideas to where do you go next? You have had great success, but you have also failed. You're quite open about that. You had a big failure when you were a PhD student, and I know that you learned a lot from that and that it kind of set you on this path. Tell me about it. Well, it's almost not quite fair because the way you asked the question made it sound like I'm about to tell you something far more embarrassing, which I certainly could, but I will tell you that story but it's a research context, right? And in research, you will often be wrong. So an intelligent failure in the context of research is a hypothesis that isn't supported by the data. I was a part of a larger study, and my hypothesis was that better teamwork in healthcare delivery setting, hospitals, would lead to fewer medical errors. And unfortunately, the data seemed to be saying that better teams had higher, not lower, error rates. So that was exactly the opposite of what I'd predicted. And it was quite disturbing, confusing. And of course, my initial reaction upon seeing the data results was to have my thinking, you know, spiral out in an unhelpful way and to try to think about, well, what will I do now after I drop out of graduate school? Now, that's a classic case of awfulizing or catastrophizing when, in fact, it's just data, right? It's maybe inconvenient at that moment and puzzling or disturbing at that moment, but it's truly not catastrophic. And what happened next was I had to to sit and think very deeply about it and try to figure out what might be explaining those results. And it occurred to me that in better teams, maybe they have a higher comfort level reporting mistakes. So that, in fact, the data on error rates might be flawed data, right? As opposed to, I was pretty sure that the veracity of my team's survey data was strong, but it suddenly occurred to me 
that the medical researcher's ability to actually get solid, accurate data on error rates might be harder than it first looks. Big failures you obviously can't hide, but many of the little things that go wrong can easily go underreported, as we all know in our day-to-day -day lives. So that's what I began to think might be happening. I thought, okay, if that's true then, that means even within the same hospital context, we've got real differences in people's attitudes about mistakes and failures and their willingness to talk about them. And later I called that phenomenon psychological safety. You said something interesting, though. You said, you think I'm going to tell you a really embarrassing story. And I kind of did, actually. I kind of did think you were going to tell me a, a story that is certainly much more embarrassing than that. I mean, I've had failures in my life. I was fired a couple of times. I've certainly failed in relationships. I think of my divorce as a failure. I've had little mistakes, you know, failures along the way, too. Why do we find it so difficult to reflect on, to own up to our failures? I mean, I can't tell you how long it took me to just be able to say, yeah, divorce, in that way that I can now talk about it. Yes, I think relationship failures can be painful embarrassing. We get cultural messages, and it's not just relationships, it's career and work and almost any setting you can think of, sports, that we get cultural messages that say success is what you want. And why is it so devastating or so hard to admit failure? I think it's because at a deep level, we worry very much about rejection, right? So it's not just, you know, embarrassing, it's terrifying at some level. There's a possibility that if you really knew me, if you really saw all my flaws, you wouldn't like me anymore. You wouldn't want me around. And I'd end up friendless, penniless, and destitute. And the sad thing is, is we actually like our friends are people where we know they have flaws because we acknowledge them to each other, right? We, I think the difference between an acquaintance and a friend happens that moment when you start being very real and vulnerable about your worries, your anxieties, your shortcomings, your failures. So we have these wrong mental models that we have to keep overcoming. And yet we are very quick to jump on the failures of others in a lot of cases. We're really oh, quick yes. to point out when other people have failed and not so quick to reflect necessarily on our own failure, which you call our failure to learn from failure, which I think is interesting. How do we turn the corner on that? I think it's educating ourselves, right? Educating ourselves to just step back and realize, yes, you're a fallible human being. Each and every one of us is a fallible human being. That's the nature of being a human being. And we also work and live in fallible systems, right? So that kind of around every corner is the potential for something to go wrong. That's okay. I mean, we can always, we can do better. And of course, we can and must learn from failures, our own and others. But I think the real answer to your question is that we have these wrong-headed beliefs about what we should be like and what we should be doing. We should be perfect. We should be without flaw. And that's just 
not consistent with reality. You know, it makes me think of the work that has been done in and around women in investing. I run an investing club for women. It's called Investing Fix. I do it with my friend Karen Feinerman, who's a professional investor. And we teach investing to a few hundred women every other Monday night on Zoom. And a lot of these women are, they're so brilliant. They're just, they're so smart. The, the questions that they bring to our club are amazing. And yet they're not confident investors, which is one reason I think that they're there. One theory about why women shy away from the risk involved with investing is that we don't want to fail. We don't like to fail. We like to know the answer to every question before we ask it. I know that's true of me. So what do you think of that? First, let's honor risk aversion in investing and anything else, right? There's an element of it that is very healthy. We actually don't, I don't want to advise people to take unnecessary risk. So part of the definition of what I call an intelligent failure is that it's as small as possible, right? It's just big enough to get the learning you need to make the next step. That might be the next investment. So success in an uncertain world depends on high quality bets, right? It doesn't depend on a crystal ball because those don't exist, but it does depend on your ability to formulate a reasonable hypothesis about what might happen with this investment or with this project. And part of what makes it high quality is it's not bigger than you can afford, whether that's financially, reputationally, or from a human safety perspective. That's a very interesting way to think about it. In your book, you write about three different distinct types of failure. Can we talk about what they are and how they're different? Sure. And of the three types, I will, I'll just preview that only one of them is good. Not in an ethical, moral sense, but in a sort of useful, productive sense, a celebratory sense. So the three kinds are basic, complex, and preventable. And the basic failures are those undesired results that are caused by a single error, a single, a single deviation from known practice. They take place in familiar territory. You know, you accidentally put in sugar instead of salt in the recipe, and it ruins it. Complex failures are multi-causal. They're the kinds of failures that happen when a handful of factors line up in just the wrong way. And any one of them, they could be deviations, you're doing something not quite right, you're a little late for a meeting, a handful of things, any one of which on its own would not have produced a failure. But the fact that they all came together creates a failure. In healthcare delivery, for instance, this is a breeding ground for complex failures. There's sort of so much complexity that sometimes just little deviations in, from very best practice all come together and lead to, say, a drug overdose happening at the bedside. Again, very much neither of those are good. They're both preventable. And now let's draw a line in the sand because now we go to the third kind. And the third kind are genuinely good. They're genuinely useful. I call them intelligent failures. And they are the still undesired result of a novel foray in new territory. And to be even more sort of crisp about it, they are in pursuit of a goal. It's genuinely new territory. There's no known answer about how to get the result you want. You've done enough thinking about it to have good reason to believe it might work. And finally, it's no bigger than it has to be. 
right? So it's an experiment where you don't waste resources. The risk you're taking is just big enough to get the new knowledge that you desperately need. So I think I get it sort of in terms of how these might apply in life, right? The basic failure is when I don't close the door to my closet and my dog eats a shoe, even though he's done that many times, I know he's going to. And so it's on me. It's preventable. And I failed. It's preventable. It's preventable. I mean, we don't blame you right away. We want to know more about what you were dealing with, et cetera, et cetera. But it's preventable and it's not a happy outcome. No. And my husband does blame me. I mean, let's just put that out there. And he's like, this is, you have to learn. This is you. All right. The complex, it does make sense sort of in that medical setting, right? If there's a shift change and somebody new comes in and they hang the wrong IV bag and they didn't bother to check the chart and see that somebody was on a different medicine that got them all messed up, that's a problem. Right. The two names of the patients are similar or the names of the medications are similar. Again, any one of those little factors on its own wouldn't lead to a bad outcome, but several of them happening together and the failure gets through could be really bad. We are going to take a quick break. Her Money is proudly sponsored by Edelman Financial Engines. Whether your retirement is a few decades away or right around the corner, you need a strategy to help make sure you have enough saved and invested to do and see and experience what you want most. It's time to make sure your money is working for you. It's been more than a year now that I've been working with the planners from Edelman Financial Engines as the host of the Everyday Wealth Podcast. I am a fan of their holistic approach, the fact that they don't just look at your investments, but at your whole life. You can request a complimentary wealth checkup at planefe.com slash hermoney. And we're back. The intelligent failure. Can you give me an example? Sure. I mean, the bread and butter for a scientist is an intelligent failure. So I I open the chapter on intelligent failures in the book with the story of Jennifer Heemstra, who's a, a chemistry professor, the first woman to get tenure in chemistry at Emory University. And she describes an experiment in her lab where they're trying to get messenger RNA to separate and they have a hypothesis that a certain chemical might work. It doesn't work. Then they think maybe salt will work. They put the salt in. That doesn't work, right? So both of those were failures. Both of those sounded like quick, like you're in the kitchen. It's not. It takes a little time. So both of those involve time and resources, and yet they led to disappointing results. And those are, in fact, disappointing to the scientists involved, but not devastating because they've trained themselves to know that if you want to be a leading-edge scientist, you will be experiencing failures on the way to hopefully some stunning successes. Now, in, in an investment space, all of us have had investments that didn't produce the results we'd hoped. And if we're thoughtful, you had good reason to believe it might be a good investment. You'd done your homework on thinking about the company or the market or what have you, and just turned out that reality didn't cooperate. So that would be an intelligent failure. Right. And when you think about it, 2022 was kind of an intelligent failure, right? In At least in the bond market, right? Things just didn't line up like they were supposed to. And, and you couldn't have known in advance. 
Right. And hopefully you had enough time to sort of ride it out. Right. You didn't invest more than you could afford to lose. All of this talk has made me think a little bit about Sam Bankman-Fried, right? The golden boy, the former golden boy of crypto. I mean, people, some people are scratching their heads depending on what round of testimony you're reading to try to figure out if his failures were malicious or if he was just trying to do too many things at once. Right. Reading the, the news coverage, it does seem that the more we know the more it seems that some deception and fraud were part and parcel of the company, at least for a while, right? Maybe not on day one. You know, it's true. It's like, it's one thing for me to offer definitions of the three kinds of failure, but in most cases, you do need to do some thoughtful analysis to know which type is this. I mean, sometimes it's obvious, but in other cases, if you need more information about the context and the players and the intentions and so forth to really diagnose. Clearly, this was new territory. It's very novel territory. And clearly, this is a guy who's done his homework, right? So check, we're sort of heading in the right direction of intelligent failure. But, right, we start to fall, we start to fall off the path of intelligent failure as we learn more. The other example I've been thinking of is a woman named Catalin Carrico and Andrew Weissman, who basically were responsible for a lot of the mRNA vaccine research that led to oh, us being able to have yes. the COVID vaccine so quickly. And she is at my alma mater, the University of Pennsylvania, where for many years this has been written about. They just didn't believe in her research, right? They, they just, they... They believed her research was a failure of sorts and put her in a small lab, kind of shunted her aside until, P.S., this failed research saved a whole lot of people and won the Nobel Prize. And I was taken by your description that scientists are used to failing. Scientists, this is sort of built in for scientists, but there are a lot of people who are afraid to take risks at work because quote unquote failing can cost them their jobs. Do you have any suggestions for ways that we can expand our ability to try things without fear of being reprimanded or fired? Well, I think it starts with situation awareness or sizing up the context. And in my thinking, context has two basic dimensions, right? One is what are the stakes? Those could be financial stakes or human safety stakes, sometimes reputational stakes. And the other is how much uncertainty is there? Now, I love to talk about scientific labs because they're at the high end of uncertainty. I mean, they're, they are literally deliberately choosing to play around in the domain that nobody understands yet so that we can understand it better. So they, because they appreciate, that's the context they've chosen, they have to train themselves to be less allergic to failure than the average person. And if you're running a lab, you remind the young people who work for you that this is the game we're playing and it's okay. Jen Heemstra says, we're going to fail all day, right? And and <laughs> and uh, my husband is, is also a scientist and I asked him once, how many of the experiments or what percent of the experiments in your lab end in failure? And to his credit, he thought about it. He said, well, I think about 70%. And I said, yes. And then I realized that wasn't a very supportive response. But <laughs> I wanted to be right, of course, and so it was close enough. But the point is, 
you won't be a good scientist if you don't help your students and postdocs and employees to sort of truly understand both intellectually and emotionally that this is the context. Now, your average employee in, let's say, a large uh, financial services firm is not going to get kudos for some giant failure in their job. But the bigger risk, I would say, of sort of having people being happy to fail indiscriminately, the bigger risk is that things will go wrong and you won't hear about it. Right? So the bigger risk is we toxify failure so much that people are then unwilling to speak up with the small signals that something might be off in time to catch and correct and then avoid the big failures. Because I'm a big fan of avoiding big failures. And so in companies, people and leaders in particular want to be very clear about what context, all companies include many contexts. You've got some R&D, you've got some, some routine operations, but be super clear about what's at stake and what's the uncertainty. And that spells out how much experimentation we are willing to engage in. And that can be very low because high stakes, uncertainty, or it can be very high because the future depends on it. Well, and there are a lot of investors who use a paradigm that's similar. They'll make a bet, and if it drops by 10% or 15%, they get out. They get out. Keep the loss small. Yeah, to limit the losses. It does seem in, in some circumstances that women have less license to fail often and fail hard. When men fail, they tend to brush it off, life goes on, or at least give that outward appearance. When women fail, it sticks with them until they prove themselves otherwise. And, you know, I think if, if we looked for examples of this, you know, female CEOs. Well, Catalina, female, that you just said, yeah, too. Catalina, yeah, right. I mean, why do we expect more of women or as women, why do we expect more of ourselves? Well, I was just going to say, I think there are two, you know, two uh, mutually reinforcing factors here. And one is our own psychology, upbringing, socialization. And then the other is the cultural messaging around gender. And I think women tend to internalize more of the messaging that we have to be perfect or we have to, we have to not make mistakes because other people are depending on us in some way. And so there's a, there's a lot of quiet messages that, that we internalize. And they're, of course, coming from the broader cultural uh, forces. I do believe our, our media and our business context are far less forgiving of women who experience failures, both in the kind of blameless category and in the blameworthy uh, category. We vilify those visible examples in a way that is problematic, I think, in terms of what really matters, which is the future, which is allowing us to take healthy risks and to be honest about it. And the only solution I have, which isn't much of a solution, but I think it's a beginning, is to make it discussable, which is exactly what you're doing. I mean, I think the more we talk about this aloud, the more we reduce its pernicious effects. When you have a failure, and it's a public or semi-public failure, right? Public in your family, public in your company, public in the world. What's the next right move? Is it an apology? Is it this is how we fix it? Is it this is how we move forward? Or is it just you full steam ahead? Well, all of the above in a way, because they're interrelated. So I mean, a, a good apology 
does take accountability for your part in a failure. You're rarely, but sometimes, 100% responsible for the failure, right? There's things you did that contributed. There's things you didn't do that contributed. And the courage to own those and own up to them and, and label them is sort of part of a good apology. Another part of a good apology is making amends where you can. Either I promise to do this differently next time, or if there are things you can do to help out with someone who has been harmed by your action, one does them. And they're good examples of this both in personal life and in corporate life of CEOs and others doing the good apology that both owns up to the shortcomings and helps make amends to the customers or whoever were harmed. So, but probably... Even before you can apologize, especially a public apology, comes the step of learning as much as possible about the simple question, what happened? You know, it's not don't jump to conclusions that, oh, I screwed up. or what, you know, Let's just ask the clean, clear question, what happened? So that we can fully understand it, primarily for the goal of never having that exact one happen a second time. And then, yes, move on. But I think moving on without doing some of the important work of learning and connecting with those who were affected is not useful. Yeah, I think you're right. You got to parse it out, even if you have to take a beat. And you should take a beat. You must take a beat. more than one. Yep. So interesting. Amy, thank you so much for being here. Where can we learn more about your work on this topic? Well, the book, Right Kind of Wrong, The Science of Failing Well, which just came out recently, is a great place to start. I think it's a book that has insights for managing and for parenting and for just living a full and adventurous life. Um, you can also go to amycedmondson.com and uh, find me there as well. Thank you. Thanks for being here. We hope you'll come back. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And we'll be right back with Julia and your mailbag. Hey, everybody. It's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey, you guys, it's Jean. I want to tell you about another podcast I think you'll love because I love it. Freakonomics Radio. Every week, host and best-selling author Stephen Dubner dives into the hidden side of business and economics and so much more. He interviews CEOs, historians, even Nobel laureates to explore all kinds of topics like whether AI has a sense of humor and whether two CEOs are better than one. If you are curious like me and just looking to better understand the world around you, you will find it on Freakonomics Radio. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
And we're back for Mailbag with my daughter, Julia Chatsky. Hey, Jules, how are you? I'm good. I just got my eyebrows done. That's why you're staring at yourself in the Zoom. Yeah, I'm checking myself out. (laughs) (laughs) You guys can't see my daughter, but she's sitting there and she's raising one eyebrow and then she's raising (laughs) the other eyebrow and they do look good. Did it hurt? No. I went to this lady, Manana, that my, my camp friends all go to. Do you remember the Friends episode where Monica's identity was stolen and the woman who stole her identity was pretending to be Monica Geller? And so Monica told her that her name was Manana. No, I don't. But that's hysterical. You'll have to go back and watch it. Although these days, I got to say, I still can't watch Friends without being sad. I know. Let's take some questions. All right. Our first question today comes to us from Ashlyn. She writes... I've been listening to Her Money for almost six months since a podcast about changing careers came up in my search results. I filed for Chapter 7 bankruptcy last year after I thought I might finally get some breathing room financially. I was able to protect our home during the bankruptcy, but then got hit with back-to-back major home repair bills. Just when I started building my savings back up, I've now had a series of car repair bills that have wiped out those savings and have had to put the most recent $3,000 repair bill on credit cards that I got after the bankruptcy to rebuild my credit. I only used them for budgeted recurring expenses and paid in full at the end of the month. But now I've maxed out the credit cards and it will take three months of aggressive repayment to pay them off. And then my son was in the hospital last week from an asthma attack. It just keeps coming and coming. And now I'm putting off medical procedures to the detriment of my quality of life and pause the reskilling necessary to change careers. My wife is unable to work due to a mixture of disability and caring for two special needs children, so it all falls on me. I've always been taught that paying off high-interest debt should be the number one priority, but I've been wondering if maybe it would be a better idea to just make the minimum payments for a while with the 30% interest and try to actually build up some cash savings. Would that help? And if not, what can I do to get out of this cycle? Oh, boy. Ashlyn, first of all, just take a breath. I mean, this is a lot. It's a lot that has happened to you in a very short period of time. And I think it's particularly hard when you've gone through the process of taking the steps to right your ship. You were doing the right things. You built up an emergency cushion, and then you get hit again and again. And sometimes life just happens. But Because you've done this before, you know that you can do it again. And so here's the way that I would approach it. I think you do want to try to do a little bit of a mix of saving with some perhaps not quite so aggressive debt repayment. But what I don't want you to do is make minimum payments. Minimum payments are a trap. They'll keep you in debt for years. So you're looking for something where perhaps you can split the difference a little bit. And then I want you to go and find yourself a credit union. I don't know if you have a credit union at work. I don't know if you have a local credit union, but Look for a credit union where you can actually go in and talk to somebody there about whatever's going on in your life and see if perhaps 
you can refinance the debt on this credit card down to a lower interest rate that will just enable you to pay it off a little bit easier. I don't think that you're going to be able to get a very low bottom of the barrel teaser rate. I'm hoping that maybe if you talk to somebody and they've got a program in place, you could get an interest rate of 9, 10, 11%, something like that. Either way, try to do a little bit of both. Try to track how long it's going to take you to reach your goal, which I know you're capable of doing because you told me that it would take three months of aggressive debt repayment. And then when you do start stashing money away in that emergency cushion, you want to aim for a full six months worth of expenses for emergencies because you are the only wage earner in your household. When we've got two wage earners, we can sometimes have a smaller emergency cushion because if one partner falls on hard times, we know that the other one has the ability to bail us out. In a case like yours, it just needs to be bigger. It'll happen. I know it will. I've got a lot of um, faith in you and I wish you all the luck in the world. So keep going. Keep going. You got it. All right. Next question. Next question. Our next question comes to us from Megan. She writes, Hi, Jean and team. Thanks for answering my question. I always love your perspective on complicated money situations and how you approach things with kindness and grace. So here's my conundrum. My mom loves to buy gifts. It's her love language. She always gets me several things for the holidays. However, this year, I asked her not to. I don't really need more stuff because I have everything I need and a pretty small house. Instead, I asked if she could forgive part of a loan I owe her. She flat out refused because she said that's boring and she wants to buy the gifts. So, I'm not sure what to do. Any thoughts? Should I just accept that my mom is going to buy me stuff I don't need once a year and move on? Was there another approach I could have made? Thanks for your help. Oh, I really wish your mom was willing to listen to you. And clearly she is thinking a lot more about what makes her happy than what would make you happy. And we know because there is a lot of research on what's called pro-social spending, that when we do things that are really in service of other people, those are the things that make us as the giver happier. So she hasn't learned that lesson. That is not something that you're going to be able to teach her. Boy, part of me wants to say, I hope these gifts are of value. Take the gifts, flip them or re-gift them, save yourself some money and, and use that money to repay the loans that you have outstanding and the, the money that you owe your mom. I mean, I think that might be terrible. I was going to say, I mean, mine's terrible too, but ask her for gifts from a department store, a store that sort of has everything that you can get multiple things for. So if she gets you something for the home, you can return it. And I don't know if... Megan has kids, but get pajamas for your kids or your nieces, your nephews. Hold on to that gift card for when you need a new pair of jeans and then you're not spending the money at all. I don't know. That's a tough one. No, I think that makes sense. It reminds me of what I've heard about bridal registries. On Zola.com, good thing for any up-and-coming brides, grooms. To know. To know. Is that on Zola.com, let's say, this is like an ad. Shout out to Zola, okay? If you... 
register on Zola. Let's say you do like Crate and Barrel, Bloomingdale's, whatever. All our family friends are going on. They're picking out the gifts. Up, oh, Jean Chatsky has decided to get me the Cuisinart from my registry. Turns out Jean Chatsky doesn't know that I already have the Cuisinart. So Zola sends you a notification and they're like, do you want to accept the gift or do you just want the cash value of the gift? Jean Chatsky never knows that I don't get that gift. She just thinks like, cha-ching, Julia's getting her Cuisinart. And then I know Jean Chatsky thinks she got me a Cuisinart so I can think, dear Jean, thank you so much for the Cuisinart. But really, I just got the cost value of it. Brilliant. The wrinkle is if what you really want is the cash, because you're right. There are a lot of people, I think, my age who would rather buy an actual gift than give cash. We we feel like buying a gift is more meaningful or more special for whatever reason in a lot of cases. But if you register for things that you already have, when I come to your apartment and I see the Cuisinart, I don't know that it's not the Cuisinart that I got you. Right. And so then you're not caught out. Because the big problem was somebody sends you a vase, right? You have to put that out when they come to visit you. So unless you're planning on never inviting these people to your apartment, you got to be a little crafty. Maybe, Megan, you, you play some sort of a, a version of that and you use, the, uh, you use the money to help you in other ways in your life. Thank you, Julia. Thanks for having me. If you have any other money-related questions, we'd love to hear from you. Just send them to us by emailing mailbag at hermoney.com. And now we're going to take a quick break. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobir. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. We are back with your money tip of the week. What do you usually get when you go on your monthly Costco run? For me, first of all, it's not every month. I go maybe two, three times a year, but then I really load up. And I load up on paper towels, detergent, cans of tuna, and of course, olive oil. But there is now a new item that Costco can't seem to keep in stock. It's gold. Gold bars, to be exact. Recently, the members-only warehouse chain began selling one-ounce gold bars exclusively online. They go for just under $2,000, and they are continuing to sell out. So should you grab one for yourself the next time they're in stock? Look, while there is value in having tangible investments— Investing in precious metals can be risky. Unlike bonds and stocks, precious metals don't make interest or dividend payments, and you only make money if the price goes up. If you are thinking about going for the gold, get up to speed on safe trading practices. Investopedia has a great guide for getting started. And be aware of people who may try to sell you counterfeits. For more timely money tips like this one, subscribe to the Her Money newsletter at hermoney.com slash subscribe. 
Thanks for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks so much to Amy Edmondson for her advice on failing well and failing often. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. We love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Edelman Financial Engines. Her Money is produced by Haley Pascalides. This show is mixed and mastered by CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Check out our new podcast, How She Does It, with Karen Feinerman for intimate cocktail party-style conversations with today's most talented female leaders. This podcast is also part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. You can find us and other shows like us at airwavemedia.com. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon. 